Hi there listener, I'm Jason Stockwell and welcome to Inside the Hive, a show all about robotics and automation. So Inside the Hive focuses on three things, stories, tech and people. Today has a slightly different spin as we sat with Make UK about a week ago. Make UK help manufacturing organisations in a lot of areas, from exporting to Brexit advice, all the way through to robotics and automation help. They use a lot of partners to help them do this, they're not they're by no means experts in robotics. But just wanted to let you guys know beforehand that this podcast is more of an overview of the sector than a deep dive into how robotics is changing the world. So we talk a lot about the future of manufacturing, how the sector is affecting the UK economy, as well as the role that robotics and automations taking on in the workplace. They also share some really interesting insight on how diversity in the workplace is changing and how they can bring more young people into manufacturing. So like I said, it's not directly linked to robotics. They do touch on it at the end. But if you're interested in robotics, you're likely interested in the future of work, so we thought it would be relevant. So the two guys we sat down with are Stephen Tulip and Jim Davison. Anyway, I'll let them get on with the talking. Hey Stephen, how did you start out at Make UK? Well, I got interviewed by Jim, funnily enough, and he <laughs> agreed to hire me, so something probably went wrong there. But um, no, I got hired because I uh, used to work for other membership bodies, and so Make UK is very passionate about ensuring that its members feel feel loved, feel supported, get the advice and guidance that they need. So that was why they brought me in, so I could help do, do that. And I've been there for about three years now. The interview must have gone well. It was good. It was good. Nerve-wracking. And, and there may be two of them. So, yeah, but it was uh, worked, out, worked out well in the end. <laughs> what was the biggest challenge Jim set you? Oh, I, I had to do a presentation on manufacturing. Um, and because I'm one of the few people at Make UK who isn't a manufacturing background, that was quite difficult. So there's a lot of hasty googling the the day before trying to work out what all these manufacturing terms meant but Jim was if he if he noticed that I didn't know what I was talking about he was very forgiving about it anyway <laughs> Brilliant. And what about yourself Jim? So I joined Make UK in 2003 as part of the manufacturing advisory service team uh, very much going out working with small and medium sized manufacturers to help them improve productivity within their organisations. Uh, I then moved into operations management within uh, what was EEF and uh, have been region director for the last eight years. Guys, what are you going to be going through today? Uh, today we're going to talk about the, the impact that robots are having on manufacturing in the UK, uh, the different types of application, the different types of industry. I'm uh, going to tell you a bit about our membership and what Make UK do and just enjoy having a conversation with you guys. And what we're also going to talk about today is why manufacturing is a very vibrant sector in the UK, why it's an important sector to the UK economy and why it's a sector that young people should be interested in, excited about and keen to get involved with. But yeah, thanks for thanks for inviting us down today. We're really looking forward to it. Oh, thanks very much for coming. Can you just explain what exactly it is Make UK do to support UK manufacturers? Yeah, absolutely. So Make UK is a membership body, first and foremost, and we are the uh, one of the largest membership bodies in the UK, and our members are manufacturing businesses, as, as you might uh, imagine. So we're the biggest network of UK manufacturing businesses, and that's at the core of what we do. So we encourage our manufacturing businesses to talk to each other, to help solve their problems, and also put them in touch with expertise. That expertise might be within Make UK, so we have a lot of advice on things like productivity, HR legal support, health and safety and training, um, or it might be putting them in touch with partners, so people like the Bristol Robotics Laboratory who can answer their questions around automation, or indeed BotHive who can help them with, uh, with that <laughs> as well. 
Um, so we do a lot of things like events uh, and uh, guidance and briefings for our members to make sure they're as informed as possible. And a big part of what we do is representing them to government as well. So we're one of the five business organisations that government turn to when they say that they've spoken to business about an issue. What they do is speak to five organisations and we're lucky enough to be one of those and the one that represents industry. So yeah, we've been around for about 125 years supporting manufacturing businesses and yeah, re really great job in that we get to go and talk to these fantastic factories and find out what they do and help solve their problems. Wow, okay, great. And in terms of your membership and the organisations you help, what is the split of industries within manufacturing that you work with? Yeah, so we've got, we do represent anyone who makes anything as a manufacturing sector. So we've got everything from very technological, um, high-tech, cutting-edge stuff through to people who are metal foundries who you know melt metal and pour it into into molds um, in terms of size the smallest company that I look after has got two employees and the biggest ones are people like um, multinational automotive companies household name manufacturers and everything in between I suppose in terms of sectors in the south that we we have a strong concentration on there's a lot of aerospace as you might imagine in Bristol and uh, there's a lot of marine further down on the south coast a lot of tech companies as well that we represent. But yeah, really it's it's anyone that makes or manufactures anything. So again, it's really interesting the, the variety that you get to see. And Jim, how exactly do Make UK help people? And how active are you guys in supporting manufacturing companies' needs? It's fundamentally the, the core of what we do. Um, yeah, the exciting part of, of the role that Stephen and myself undertake is, is getting out there, meeting organisations or meeting people that work for fantastic manufacturing organisations, understanding what they do, linking them with other manufacturers, with other um, service providers, really helping them transform, evolve and develop their businesses. Um, so yeah, fundamentally that's what we do. Stephen's mentioned the events, um, which are an important part. Um, we can do those as far as sharing best practice or uh, very much if a member comes uh, and says, look, I've got this particular issue or this opportunity that I'm looking to exploit, who can you introduce me um, to go and see? We can do that as well. So, yeah, it's, it's a massive part of what we do. And you were telling me a little bit earlier on, before we started recording, about a survey you recently did about the perception of manufacturing in the UK. Uh, can you share with our listeners what the results of that survey were? Yeah, so we wanted to uh, see what the public perception of manufacturing in the UK was. So we asked a thousand people who weren't involved with the sector in any way, shape or form to rank the UK in terms of manufacturing output. So basically a list of all the countries in the world that make stuff, where do you think we are in terms of output? And the answer came back that we were something like 57th in the world which is actually where Kazakhstan sits. So not particularly great. And the reality is that the UK is the ninth biggest manufacturing nation in the world. And we've never not been in the top 10. So yeah, there's a, there's a, it was really um, shocking actually to us that the public perception was so much lower than the reality. And that's why we do such a, a lot of work in promoting manufacturing in the UK as being a vibrant sector. So as you guys work with a vast array of manufacturing companies, you must get a lot of insight. So what are the trends you're seeing in terms of the support these companies need right now? Okay, so, so um, we, we, we survey our members regularly uh, and that helps us really understand w what are the trends, what are the opportunities, what are the threats, you know, where, 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 are, where is change coming from? Um, and 
this year has been quite an interesting year insofar as the first three months of the year, many organisations were having to produce, uh, in reality, twice the amount of, of products that they would have done in an in a ordinary period. Uh, and that was very much driven by the fact that we were likely to leave uh, the EU at the end of March. Um, so customers were saying, hey, look, you know, we want to have at least six months stock by the time we get to that point to weather whatever happens. Uh, the reality was we didn't leave. Um, so Q2 has been very interesting. Some, some industries uh, clearly are deciding they're going to maintain that elevated level of stock uh, and they're seeing business continue. Uh, some other organisations are seeing that actually orders dropped off a cliff. So they got to the end of end of March and it's been very much, wow, where's the next order going to come from? Um, again, that's very much driven by industry sector. Uh, so the automotive industry in particular, um, lots of the uh, high tier OEMs, original equipment manufacturers closed for two, three weeks around uh, the end of March. Uh, so they lost production time, three weeks worth of production time. Uh, we didn't leave the EU, so there was no period of stabilisation that they were hoping to insulate themselves from. Uh, and that's why the, the GDP, GDP figures um, for Q1 were suppressed, particularly for, for the automotive industry. As, as far as sort of wider challenges, clearly... Um, the devaluation of sterling has been an opportunity for exporters potentially because their 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 products are relatively cheaper in some of those in Europe and, and the US in particular. Uh, the the flip side of the coin is that actually they buy lots of materials in euros or dollars. So actually many organizations are seeing their margins squeezed. Um, so that leads to a point with well how do, how do we drive cost out of our business? And that's where potentially um, technology and investment in capital equipment is starting to happen with some of those organisations. And I guess the other big challenge is, is not only the, the introduction of technologies, but also um, there is a fundamental skill shortage within, within the sector. So replacing people that are reaching the end of their careers, so people that retire, but also actually attracting young people to, to start a career in manufacturing is also a challenge. So we've heard it mentioned before and you've mentioned it again today and that's the skills shortage and getting young people into manufacturing, Stephen. How exactly would you describe Make UK's policy of bringing new talent into manufacturing and getting, getting young people into the sector? Yeah, so it's interesting you said policy actually. One thing that we should explain is that you've kind of got the regional team, which is what Jim and I do, and then in London we've got a uh, building full of very clever people who do our policy work. So when we're engaging with government, these guys sort of translate that into English, effectively, and we distribute, distribute that through our membership. So the apprenticeship levy is a good example of that. Um, we've just done a report saying that 95% of our members want the levy to change, and our policy guys in London take what those businesses have said and um, go directly to, to relevant, relevant government ministers and try to get those changes to happen. So yeah, it's quite interesting. So that's all on the policy side. What actual action is being taken to improve the skill shortage and make sure the industry is more appealing to young people? So a, a, a couple of strands to that. One is understanding what the issues are that organisations are facing. Uh, and one key issue is it's quite clear 
that the availability of skilled people is going to change, particularly with regard to some of the immigration policies that the UK government are following. Um, so making sure that um, availability of people is, is, is still there is, is going to be important. Um, and how do you do that? Well, we, we can encourage young people to embark on a, an engineering or a manufacturing career, but that's going to take five to ten years to actually come to a fruition. Uh, there's also the opportunity to retrain people that are already in the workplace. Um, we haven't really touched yet on the, the changing skills requirements um, and retail is a good example. You know, we're seeing people that are no longer being employed in some retail organisations, actually we can retrain those people and because we've got a, a shortage of skilled people in manufacturing, we should be doing that. Our, our members quite clearly see skills as probably the, the number one issue to holding their organisations back and stopping them growing. Um, so the challenge to us has been, yeah, it's great that you talk about it as an organisation and you, you represent us from a policy perspective, but Make UK, you need, to, you need to tangibly do something about that. And that's why we invested in our technical training centre in, in Aston, near Birmingham. Uh, we train a thousand apprentices, apprentices every year. That's in areas like mechatronics, electronics, you know, very much those future-facing uh, skills, needs and requirements. And that's like working in a, in a business. It's, it's, it's very well equipped. It has some great equipment. Uh, the young people um, clock in. So it's very much replicates the world of work um, so that actually when they leave that training centre, they are ready to, to start contributing to those organisations. And then we work with, with universities and other organisations, again, to, to, to help, organize, help individuals decide that a manufacturing career is something that, that's for them. So that whole next generation piece, is, again, is, a, is an area that's very important to Make UK and something that we're, we're really starting to uh, push forward because, yeah, the health of health of our industries is, is going to be driven by the, the, the fantastic people that we need to recruit. Um, and the other thing we've done is changed our name. So Make UK is actually a new brand. We were called EEF until the start of this year. And one thing the new brand's done is it's a lot more colourful, it's a lot more vibrant. We've made the website a lot more vibrant as well. And a big driver behind that was to, to make the industry appealing to young people. You know, we're the organisation that champions manufacturing. And if we're not doing that in an interesting way, then we're missing an opportunity to, to attract young people into the sector and really show off its best bits. So yeah, the name change was largely driven by that desire to make it manufacturing, well, to demonstrate the fact that it is a vibrant, uh, vibrant, interesting uh, sector that's a really great place to work for young people. It's not just the old image of noisy, dirty, um, you know, environments, it's actually all these modern fantastic facilities where you use things like robotics and cutting edge, uh, cutting edge design technology to, to make products. So you mentioned the Make UK brand as well and the new branding that you've gone through. Personally, I love it. It's really colourful. It's really clear. How is the brand shaping the future of manufacturing and getting young people into the sector? And do you, do you think the brand's changing the way that manufacturing is considered? Interestingly enough, when I chose to do production engineering, all the wor the wise the, the words from the people that knew was you create why 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 have you started that you know it's a dead end career you're not you're not going to have a future well that was wrong and that was thirty years ago hearing different things now um, yeah the, the the kind of really exciting thing is 
how do you break down the perceptions? The one of the biggest challenges is most parents that don't know anything right, about manufacturing right. will tell their kids not to even consider it because they don't think there's a future. It goes back to the per the, the perception thing that that Stephen mentioned earlier. That survey, you know, is 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 manufacturing important to the UK economy? Yes, it is. You know, and and, and ranked at about sixth. So you know, there is a clear understanding it's important. But where do we rank as a manufacturing nation? 57th. Well, no, it's ninth. So there is a massive, massive differential. So, so the key thing for the key challenge is to work as a sector. We need to project ourselves differently, and that is where the the brand was important because that's part of that exciting, dynamic, future-looking image of, of of the sectors we represent. But yeah, we've we've really got to work. Hard on, on the educationalists, the the, the 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 parents, because the kids are being bashed over the head constantly. Don't do that. You know, it, it you won't have a future. Yeah. That's where you go. I mean, it's it's an interesting career because I think one thing that we try and promote that people don't get is that manufacturing actually pays well. So you, the average earnings are above the UK average. So yeah. it's a career that is financially a good one to go into. And I think the thing that excites me about it is it's quite a creative job really because you're essentially taking something that doesn't exist currently to becoming something that does exist into the world and even if you're making something that isn't a sort of a sexy end product you know even if you're not making an aeroplane or a or the latest sports car what you're making probably goes into something like that so there's a really interesting company that we do a lot of work with who make um blades, little blades effectively, that go into turbine engines, and those turbine engines go into fighter jets. So the thing you're working on isn't right. that interesting in of itself, but it goes into something quite interesting. And I think if you've got a, a if you've got a creative flair, if you've got a passion for design, that's what manufacturing is. Products yeah. evolve, products change, there's development, there's R and D. So it isn't just that idea that a lot of people have, as Jim said, of making the same thing over and over and over again. It's making something better over and over again, and that's why it's interesting. I think there's also, the, particularly for, for younger people, there's the emotional um, passion for improving the, the environment. And actually, the, challenge, the environmental challenges will be, will, be, um, will be addressed by engineers and manufacturers. Um, in the in the south of the country, you know, we have organisations that are developing more and more efficient electric um, power chain trains for cars, vehicles, for example. Mm. Um, you know, fantastic, genuinely leading edge technologies, battery technology. You know, there's a, a firm in Wantage uh, in Oxfordshire. Yeah, they are working to really drive battery technologies forward so that. So that we can have cars that run on electric um, power that actually can go more than a couple of hundred miles. Um, the charging infrastructure that means that when you do stop to recharge it, your car can be recharged in 30 minutes rather than eight hours uh, if, you, if you plug it into to your main source at home currently. You know, th those will be massive changes, game changes. Um, you know, the, the structures that are built to control and, and contain water and bridges, you know, there's so many amazing things that are, are designed, engineered and manufactured in the UK. And we, we've just got to celebrate those more and more and more. Yeah. And actually the ecosystem is changing. Um, 
the, the companies are getting smaller, they're, they're more agile, they're, they're able to influence and, and leapfrog some of the some of the stages that larger organizations have to follow and, and, and that's that's exciting. And then if you wrap around that digital capabilities and technologies, uh, that, that is far more appealing and, and picking up on the point Stephen made about that creativity. Wow, what a what a combination to be able to design things. Right. And actually actually see it made, yeah. you know, digitally print it, refine it, make it again. Yeah. It, it's just gonna it's gonna massively change the way that, that manufacturers and engineering are, are, are considered. We did an event not that long ago. It's all about virtual reality and augmented reality. So there was manufacturing businesses who make manufactured products, nothing particularly exciting, but the way they're testing them and the way that they're developing them is in virtual reality. If you've just come out of school or college or university, and you're going into a workplace where augmented and virtual reality are a day-to-day part of your job, that's, well, to me that seems like sci-fi. It's absolutely incredible, and that's the reality for a lot of these firms these days, and that's only going to increase. So yeah, really interested. So with the future of manufacturing in uncertain times, I'm going to mention the B word and that's Brexit. What impact will Brexit have or what impact is Brexit currently having on the manufacturing sector? So our our members have differing views depending on the markets that they operate in uh, and their understanding of what potential impact of Brexit may or may not be. Um, 65% of our members believe that we should have remained as, as stronger links with Europe as, as possible. 20% um, were unclear and there were probably about 15% that said no actually we're, we'll be fine in the brave new world post Brexit. Um, so the key things that, that we have been talking to government about is uh, movement of, of goods that has to be as friction free as possible so whatever political agreements are are torn up or or recreated need to make sure that that is protected uh, the other element to to access is people um, clearly as a, as a as a nation we we have benefited massively from uh, the skilled people that we've had uh, access to and from with regard to, to Europe uh, the, the current current government policy uh, means that that will change in particular the thirty thousand um, pounds salary threshold uh, because although manufacturing is paid above average, those are very senior roles within a manufacturing business. And actually, it's not just high skills that manufacturers need. It's also technicians and other skills within, within their organisations. Uh, and quite clearly, that £30,000 um, salary threshold means that actually th- those people are, are not going to be available. Um, so so that, that is an area that, that's very important to, to, to our industries. Um, We've all heard the, the, the descriptions of potential issues with the movement of, of goods to and from Europe. The position uh, currently from the UK is that we're not going to do any checks, any additional checks to product coming into the UK, which is fine. Um, then the obvious question is, well, so why is there going to be an issue? Well, the problem potentially is when goods start flowing back towards Europe because clearly they have to protect their borders. Uh, they, will, they will introduce a checking regime that is, is not the same as current. So they will, they will um, check every fifth lorry or every ninth lorry, and that's fine. You may think, well, that doesn't have a major impact, but potentially it does, because every minute that you um, 
introduces a delay to those lorries means that you get a backlog. And if there are backlogs at the ports, uh, lorries are then taken out of circulation and fundamentally the whole thing potentially grinds to a halt very quickly. So, so there's some of the, some of the nitty gritty things that, that we, we've uh, shared and, and made clear that that, that that needs to be covered off. Uh, the other issue is short-term financial issues. Um, the, th the build-up to the original Brexit date meant that lots of organisations uh, expected that their supply chains needed to pr provide them with additional um, stock. And in uh, the first quarter of this year, organisations were being expected to double the amount of goods uh, and stock them so that come the end of March, uh, when we were going to leave um, the EU, there was a buffer stock in circulation. C clearly, we, we are getting a far clearer um, description of the end of October now being the day that we leave. Um, and fundamentally, that potentially ties up an awful lot of cash for particularly smaller manufacturing organisations. So at some point, there will need to be uh, a mechanism to, to relieve some of the pressure, um, particularly you know, if if we leave on the at the end of October, so yeah, it, it's it's uncertainty that that is is a is a, a concern for for manufacturers. Um, you could argue that having a hard deadline of the thirty first of October removes some of that. I guess our concern as an organisation is how ready manufacturers are for that date. Um, so clearly, there's a lot of work that has to happen between now and then. We need some clear clear in, um, information from government so that actually manufacturers understand what the new status will be and then they can prepare themselves for that. Um, the, the, I guess the biggest impact will be organisations often say to us that they export to France, to Germany, but the reality is that's not really exporting. It's the same as selling to Wales or Scotland. Um, so actually the frequency and the number of, of export type transactions will will go up significantly and they can cope with that but they need to understand what that regime looks like they need to put um, systems in place so they can mini minimize some of the, the negative impacts of, of, of that so in, in terms of what may UK doing so what we should say is that we when we talk about brexit it's to do the mandate from our members so not all of our members voted remain not all voted leave it's a real mix so what we say is a direct reflection of what they say to us. But what they do all unanimously say, whether they're a deal or no deal, leave or remain, is that uncertainty is bad for their business. And I think it's fair to say that no one voted for us being three years on from the referendum and still having no idea what the future's going to look like. So yeah, the message that we're giving loud and clear is that whatever's going to happen, we need to know what it is. Business needs certainty so they can plan, so they can invest, so they can... Um, you know, make sure that their businesses can, can continue to operate and grow sustainably. Um, so one of the things we've been doing an awful lot of is helping our members with planning. So uh, mentioned, Jim mentioned earlier that we do a lot of work with government in terms of advising them and we do feedback what government are telling us directly to our members so we can help them be as prepared as possible. And and, and that's, that's really the key. While it is uncertain uh, for what the future is going to be, we try and make manufacturers able to plan what they can control as much as possible and also to ensure that they've got things like their efficiencies and productivity um, as improved as it can be. So whatever comes next, they're in the best possible shape to, to deal with it. 
but yeah, it's uh, interesting times for the sector, and until we know what's going to come next, um, yeah, it's going to be uh, going to be a bit of a rocky road, I think, for some of our members. And just on that point, do you see your customers, partners, stockpiling ahead of Brexit for a certain amount of time? And what might that look like? Is it one, three, five years? And how might it unfold beyond October? The fact that October, there's a few issues around the October date. So the first one is stockpiling, which is what you mentioned there. And it kind of depends on the size of your business. It depends on who you sell to, how you sell it, what the lead times are. So the stockpiling requirements are different for every, for every business. It entirely depends on, on the world in which they operate. Some of the other effects of it moving to the later date of October are around the fact that a lot of businesses had to implement their no-deal Brexit plan because they assumed we were leaving in March. So if you're a big multinational business, you can't just change the way you operate overnight. This could be a three-month lead time, for example. So we've already seen businesses change the way that they're structured, change the way that their supply chains work, change where their base operations from uh, to, to mitigate the impact of a no-deal Brexit. And, that, and that's the concern. While we don't have that certainty, businesses have to assume the worst, or they have to assume that they need to take the most defensive action possible, which has already led to some changes that have taken business out of the UK into other countries. So that, that's the concern. And the sooner we have certainty, the sooner the businesses can plan long term. But yeah, on the stockpiling, it entirely depends what their, what their business requirements are. And how do you work with partnerships and advise around trade due to Brexit? The DIT for, for connections within um, country um, there's also the Institute for Export that um, have been doing some training for, for Make UK members. Um, again, helping them understand you know, what's involved, what it looks like, the kind of regi- regimes they need to put in place, the approvals that they need to, um, to request prior to you know, whenever we leave Europe. Um, some fundamentals, particularly if we move to way World Trade Organization rules. Things like country of origin calculations is really important. So how much of the value of the product is generated in the UK? And some of the some of the cars that are built in or assembled in the UK um, are currently sold as cars that are made in Europe, so they can be exported to you know, Far East, America, etc. When we leave, those cars are then having to be recognized as manufactured in the UK and not enough of the value is added in the UK because fundamentally it's just assembled here uh, which means they don't meet World Trade Organization rules so so there's there's lots of, of detail that you need to get into um, just to understand some of those those codes um, tariffs so what tariffs are different products um, going to be charged depending on you know the rules under which we leave uh, again, is is really complex or can be. Uh, so we have a toolkit that can help manufacturers uh, analyse that to make sure that they are they are going to conform with with um, the, the export duties that that may or may not be agreed at the point at which we we depart. So there's there's a lots of detail that we can help manufacturers understand and then be in a as best position as they can for whatever that future looks like. Uh, and that and that information is directly linked to the government information. So when the government uh, clarifies, updates, or changes that that guidance, then that automatically flows into into the Make UK Brexit toolkit, 
which then can be used again to, to adjust the, the calculations that have been made. Yeah, the other bit's people. So the other thing the Brexit toolkit does is helps you, if you are an EU citizen working in the UK, there is a, a part of the kit that lets you answer some questions and it'll tell you what your status is likely to be after you leave the EU. And nine times out of ten, your status is you're absolutely fine to remain. But <clears throat> the, reason we, the reason we've done that is because one of the bits of feedback we're getting from our members is that it was, there was a, a bit of unrest, a bit of uncertainty amongst their EU employees. So we've created this tool so that our manufacturing business uh, members can say to their staff, look, here's the information you need. It's in a really clearly presentable way. And actually, you can be reassured that you, you are fine to, to remain working here. So that's a, yeah, another key part of what we've been doing as well. So another hotly debated topic is diversity within manufacturing. How do you make UK ensure manufacturing encourages more workplace diversity? So it, it's, as a centre, it's getting better. So put, putting the hands up, the manufacturing sector hasn't always been the best sector. Um, so it's been quite a male-dominated sector traditionally. But particularly some of the bigger firms have got a very strong record in recent years of actively promoting themselves to... Um, to women actively promoting themselves to people of different ethnic backgrounds and that's starting to bear fruit now. So you're seeing um, some big local businesses in Bristol for example, um, they've got a very clear um, upkick in people joining from those sorts of backgrounds since they've started doing that work which is really powerful. Um, and I think all businesses recognise the need for increased diversity and are taking steps, taking steps towards it. So anecdotally, when we're talking to groups of our members, a lot of them are very proud about their um, improved gender balance with their younger trainees. But it's ta it takes time to, to filter through. That's one of the issues. And obviously, all businesses can do more on that respect. But it's, it's starting to improve. And it links back to what we were saying earlier about making the sector seem generally appealing. Because as fewer young people are attracted to the sector, that means that you're getting that lack of diversity in terms of age as well. So a big part of what Make UK are doing and what other manufacturing businesses are trying to do is making it appealing to young people and actually making it clear that it's, a, it's an industry for everyone, regardless of your gender or your background, there is a exciting career in manufacturing that you can be a part of and everyone's conscious that yeah, the more we can do to promote that, the better it'll be. Not least, in fact, if you look at product design, so one of the examples that we uh, that I use quite a bit is the Volvo XC90, which is a really good family car. And it was famously, when it first came out, it blew all the other family cars out of the water because they'd taken the radical, um, the radical step of asking the people who would be the customers of that car what they wanted, what they needed. So they asked families. They asked people who were, who were families of all ages, all genders, what they'd want out of that car. And so they came up with a product that was exactly what they needed. If you're making a product, if you're a manufacturing business making a product that's used by children, by young people, by women, and it's only being designed by middle-aged men, that's not ideal. So yeah, there's a clear benefit to increased diversity. And yeah, I think businesses recognise that. There's also hard business reasons. The fact that we've talked a number of times about um, you know, fundamental chronic shortages of, of skilled people 
um, that we need to attract to the sector. It's a basic numbers game. You know, fundamentally, half of the population of the country, uh, if you talk about you know, male, female sort of uh, distributions, uh, we're missing out on. So actually as a, as a sector, in addition to all of the all of the valid reasons that Stephen's just mentioned, you know, we need to get better at promoting um, the sector to young women in particular. And and the best way of doing that is not by you know grey-haired white males like myself talking about how great the sector is. Actually it's celebrating the achievements of young women that have entered the sector. They can tell their stories, they can talk about the apprenticeships, the the benefits that they've had uh, along that journey and the great careers they've started. Uh, and we have uh, every year our manufacturing awards celebrations. Uh, and my favorite piece of, of that, that um, event is seeing the, the young people that have, have joined the sector. And we have a, a good representation of young women that stand on the stage, you know, and they, they talk about their, their great uh, journeys, the reason why, uh, and they can they can far more effectively talk about the strengths of, of a career in manufacturing than I can to to convince you know young people anyway, but particularly young women to, to join the sector. You know nothing sells the sector more than seeing somebody that they can relate to, you know that that is so enthusiastic, you know that that has been able to start an apprenticeship, is starting a fantastic career, and you know is is earning. Um, yeah, enjoying enjoying life uh, as part of the the manufacturing community. So so that's a, a, a really powerful way of, of 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 celebrating and getting people to, to to consider manufacturing. You work with a lot of manufacturing companies. How do we educate smaller businesses that automation is the right way to go in the future? And they and it's something they should be considering right now. So so I I believe that. Organisations will be forced to change uh, the way that they manufacture their manufacturing processes and that will be because of external forces. So the traditional way that they have been able to exist and, and, and continue to, to trade and manufacture the goods that they make has stood them in good stead till now. I think the fact that the, the availability of labour will become tighter so therefore, actually, you have to look at um, a different approach, which is replacing human beings with robots, not, not to displace them and put them out of work. It's the fact that there are not enough human beings that, that, that are capable of do, doing that kind of uh, production work. Uh, we talked earlier about the agricultural sector. So lots of people traditionally have been involved in picking, picking fruits, etc., or vegetables. Uh, the reason we've done that is because there has been low-cost labour that you can throw at that activity, they do it, they move on, they come back next season. Actually, that is likely to, to not, you know, there will not be the people to do that kind of work. So again, that will force innovation, that will force automation companies, robotics companies to identify solutions to, to solve that problem. So I think some of it will be externally driven. I think there's also um, the raising awareness of those business leaders that actually robotics and, and automation is not just big company um, technology, that actually the fact that te technologies have, have, that mean that now for tens of thousands of pounds you can, you can invest in a robot that can work very closely with, with, uh, with human beings um, to do some of the routine repetitive activities that you wanna be able to repeat very, very accurately. 
there are other activities where a human being and some of the discretion that a human being is capable of, particularly with, with you, you know, making decisions about um, you know, how things work and whether they, they comply to, to standards or not or are correct, you know, they're probably going to take longer to be replaced by robots. But, but yeah, ro robots are something that we shouldn't be afraid of. Actually, they're, they're able to do significantly different things now. So the capabilities of robots are just, just moving ahead so, so quickly. Um, it, it's fascinating. Uh, the challenge, though, is I don't think an organisation needs to look at technology for technology's sake. It's very important that they actually understand you know, what are the what are the, what's, the, what's the problem they're looking to solve? Is it about driving efficiency? Is it because you can't physically get people to do uh, an activity that you could do historically? Is it that robots can can deliver capabilities that you know haven't existed in the past? Really important to understand that, identify the challenge, and then the technology that can help solve that that issue. So for me, that's that's that will be a, a big step forward. I think one of the interesting bits of it as well is that often people think of robotics or automation, they think of it in terms of replacing someone's job. So one robot for one person almost. And that isn't the case, it's replacing a part of someone's job. So a good example for me is that as the population ages, we're an aging population, people are staying in work longer and longer and longer, um, you know, do, do you really need to have a human lifting a heavy component from one part of production line to another or could that be automated? So it isn't about replacing people's jobs, it's about making their jobs easier, getting robots to do what they're good at, which is repetitive heavy lifting type roles, and freeing up the humans to do the things that they're good at, which is the creativity and the things that Jim mentioned earlier. So I think, I think that's a, a key consideration. And also, as Jim alluded to as well, looking at what other businesses are doing, businesses that are like yours, businesses that are also SMEs and they're getting benefits from automation, that's how you promote it. It's not just having you know, the experts coming in and telling you that if you spend X amount on a, on a robot, you'll get X amount of benefit. Look at what the businesses are doing, go and touch it, feel it, experience it, and then you'll really get that idea of the benefits it can bring. And just on that, are there any times in a business life cycle when they need to change their behaviour and start to think about implementing robots and autom automation? Yeah, I, I, I think it, it depends on where in the business cycle the organisation is. So if they're chasing growth, um, so it's very much how do we manufacture more, then that can be a, a driver to um, invest in, in robotics technology. Um, there's an organisation that, that we know well that is investing in, in, a, in a cobot, uh, and that is to um, to refurbish uh, brake discs for um, trains, and they've gone through the whole the, the classic um, adoption cycle, if that makes sense. So they understand the problem. The reason they want to uh, invest in in the equipment is not just to displace people. Actually, it's because there's a massive, massive opportunity, and the and the uh, frequency or the, the number of, of brake pads that they need to uh, they need to turn around is is going to significantly increase. Um, and actually, the job's pretty nasty. It, it's dirty. It's repetitive. Not particularly pleasant. Um, so that robot is because they can see a business opportunity. Um, they want to exploit. Uh, they've been able to to kind of understand the, 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 the opportunity by 
utilizing human beings, but actually as it grows, establishes and, and gets bigger, actually that isn't a sustainable answer. So for them, technology mm. is, 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 is the natural next step. Um, some other organizations are in a different perspective. So it's all about ripping cost out of their, their operations. So that's where, yeah, actually you can utilize robots in a different way that mean that actually you can take out some cost uh, from that organization. Um, so it really does depend on the industry, the, the, the challenge that an organization is looking to, uh, to solve. And then the other one is that this, this massive issue with the availability of people. Um, yeah, fundamentally that is going to tip people or organizations into making the decision to, to invest in, in uh, capital equipment, robots, uh, where appropriate, uh, to solve that challenge. I think because UK manufacturing has sat on its on its cash for a while because of the external uncertainty, there will inevitably come a point where they have to invest because they have to replace some uh, legacy kit, and and that's where I think um, yeah we'll we'll see a change in behaviour. And with regards to advice and recommendations, do make UK's members come to you for advice on automation and robotics? I suppose. In a roundabout sort of way, yes. So where we're very strong with our members is helping them go and look at other businesses who've gone before them. So we'll often have companies come up to us and say, look, we're interested in seeing an example of X. Do you have anyone who's done this before? And that's how we introduce them. So that's what we do with robotics an awful lot. Companies that are interested in automation, we introduce them to a company that's done that, that's invested in it and has seen the benefit. We share case studies with them so they can see the benefits um, that way. Or we introduce them to the Bristol Robotics Laboratory, for example. So we do a lot of events here just to showcase that showcase that technology. But in terms of our in-house specialisms, I guess we wouldn't advise somebody on the type of robot they should get because that isn't what we do. That's not our area of expertise. But what we are expert in is looking at their processes and going, okay, here's your manufacturing process, here's your, your factory and everything flowing through it. Where are the bottlenecks? Where are the constraints? And could automation be one of the solutions to that? And if the answer to that is yes, then we introduce them to people who are more expert than we are, who can advise them on the type of automation, the, the brand of robot, or whatever it might be. But what we do is we help them understand that there is a, a blockage, there is a constraint, and then they explore the how automation could help, could possibly uh, free that up. So on the flip side of all the success stories, have you experienced a situation where automation or robotics hasn't necessarily worked, or it's been a bit of a been a bit of a battle to get right? Yeah, I can think of a, an example where an assembly cell um, had a pick and place robot um, that was part of that cell um, for various reasons. The cell did not generate the the benefits that they were looking for, uh, they actually had designed it around a product that didn't sell in the way that they expected it to. So fundamentally, it's a bit of a white elephant sat in the corner that is underutilized. Uh, actually, it was capable of doing what it was designed to do, but actually the need was never great enough to, with the benefit of hindsight, have, have invested in, in, in that capability. Um, so it goes back to, to my point about, and the point Stephen raised, you really, really need to be have a good understanding of, of your manufacturing process, you know, the, the products that you are selling, how you sell them, the volumes that you need to produce, and then 
invest in technology that that, that is right. I'm struggling to think of any any um, examples where the technology just didn't deliver, didn't work. I'm really struggling to to think of an example yeah. of that. Um, but yeah, that that's the obvious one. The the machine that was bought that for whatever reason is now no longer used and, and can't be uh, or hasn't been reconfigured to do anything else. And with regards to robots in the wild, how often do you come across them when you're visiting manufacturing companies? I guess more and more. I suppose the companies I tend to go and see, what you do see more and more of is that they're saying that they're planning on investing in automation and robotics. So we do see some that have got some pretty impressive uh, automation. That Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of businesses that are very far ahead with it. But there is an awful lot of industries who are looking at automation as a way of improving their um, yeah, their product handling. And I think that's probably because the benefits of Industry 4.0 are starting to trickle through and people are starting to get an understanding of that. But yeah, while those businesses are getting more and more, it's still it's not the majority there's still you know most of the businesses i see don't have automation in them but hopefully that'll start to start to change in years to come yeah i'm i'm seeing robots exploited in industries and types of business that 10 years ago you'd never have seen them so we mentioned earlier the fact that you know they're ubiquitous in a car assembly plant yeah you, know, you see them everywhere um the reality is you're seeing them migrate into lower volume, more project type examples. So fabrication and welding companies, um, you're seeing uh, welding robots deployed in, in very different um, scenarios to those that you see in a highly repetitive, high volume uh, manufacturing assembly process. Um, you're seeing them work very differently. You know, we've talked about collaborative robots, cobots, um, working very, very much closer with human beings, even in environments like um, like businesses that are producing sandwiches. So along the well, production okay. line, you will have a cobot working with human beings, you know, carrying out some of those tasks. So, yeah, I, and I think the background to that is one: the the cost of a, the barrier to entry, the cost of of the technology is far less. The simplicity that you can now teach some of these uh, these robots to, to actually do what you need them to do is often a lot simpler. Um, the interface with human beings is far more akin to your mobile phone or or, 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 or a, a tablet. Um, so yeah, all of those all of those um, drivers are meaning that you're starting to see them in, in very different um, places to to the assembly examples or the materials handling. So they've always tended to be at the you know, collating pallets, etc. Um, but actually you're seeing them at different different places now and different spaces within the manufacturing process. Jim, Stephen, it's been really, really interesting to talk with you guys today. So thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure. No, yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks very much for listening. Inside the House is produced by BotHive. I'm Jason Stockwell. For more information, go to bothive.com. That's bot-hive.com. Or follow us on Twitter at WeAreBotHive.